first motion picture with a whodunit break. 60 seconds for you to match wits with the world's greatest mystery writer and try to guess who is determined to murder 10 people. You may need this. One by one by one by one. Now, join the guests of Mr. Owen, the mysterious host of the 10 Little Indians. As the Missourian believes we're guilty of certain crimes which the law cannot touch. The whole thing's balmy. Nevertheless, that's why he's trapped us here to execute justice. Now, you play detective in Agatha Christie's classic mystery. Ten little Indians. If you want to kill the others, I won't interfere. I might even help you. You let me live. The motion picture with the Who Done It break. What happened to the ten little Indians? Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and gathering around the fire today in a very chilly mansion in the middle of some unnamed country is author Troy Howarth. Troy, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing better than my nine compatriots in this uh, in this very windy chalet. <laughs> and I'm just going to be the uh, the Christopher Lee voice on a tape recorder <laughs> hovering outside of every, all of this so that That's I don't have to... It's supposed uh, to be a secret! Uh, yeah, well, that, that was a, let's be honest here. In 1965, when that voice came over the tape recording machine, mm-hmm. I can imagine a fair portion of the audience not knowing or recognizing the voice. Well, it's interesting because he's not billed. Um, no. I'm reasonably sure that in 1974, when Harry Ontellers did his second version using exactly the same script, exactly, except they changed the location, it's it's all the same. Um, Orson Welles did the voice of U.N. Owen, and I'm pretty sure they made a big deal about billing him. But of course, Orson Welles is a legend, whereas in 65, Christopher Lee was on his way up. Um, was certainly well known in Europe, but you know, a lot of people might be forgiven, uh, you know, in the U.S., for example, not necessarily recognizing because, let's be honest, at that stage, he's best known for playing Dracula, where he doesn't really say very much. Yeah, yeah, and we should. I, I, I have neglected to tell people what we're talking about here. Although, if you've downloaded this and are listening to it, hopefully you're aware. Uh, this is uh, Ten Little Indians, the 1965 version. Uh, and uh, yes, we have led with the the least uh, <laughs> the, the 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 actor with the least amount of screen time. And as a matter of fact, absolutely no screen time. He probably recorded it in a hotel room somewhere, for all we know. But yes, Christopher Lee uh, does voice. The mysterious U.N. Owen and sets, uh, sets, let's see, the maybe the cat amongst the pigeons is not exactly the proper cliche mm. to use, but it does get the ball rolling and make sure that everybody involved in yeah. this little adventure is aware of hidden information possibly being revealed with uh, detrimental effects and uh, their lives being on the line. Yeah. So. Um, this would be the second version of this story, this Agatha Christie novel, being brought to the screen. I cannot remember if 
this version is something that I ever saw until just recently because I was incredibly familiar with the 1945 version, the first film version. Do you remember, do you know which one you saw first? I'm pretty sure I saw the 45 film first back in the uh, in the 80s. It was one of those movies that used to show up like on the Nostalgia Channel and things like that. Um, this one I came to... Um, in a kind of a slightly unusual way, I guess, in the sense that the the draw for me, and I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about him uh, as we go on, but it was the actor Dennis Price, uh, uh-huh. who I'm, I'm is really one of my all-time favorite actors. And when I became aware of him being in a version of Ten Little Indians, I thought I'll have to have to watch this, and I got a hold of the copy of the uh, old Warner cassette, and had no idea that Christopher Lee was involved. So that was a nice little Easter egg for me because I'm watching him like. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> is that? And of course, of course it is. I mean, it's Harry Allen Towers. This is right around the time he's yeah. doing the first Fu Manchu film for him. Uh, so, yeah, it all it all kind of slides together in an interesting way. You know, um, a bunch of people involved in this particular film also were involved in the Jess Franco cycle of Harry Allen Towers movies as well. Uh, yes, especially uh, Miss Eaton, who. Uh, yeah. Like it seemed to be her the it seemed to me from what I can tell the last of her screen work was actually three films that she did for Jess Franco there in the late sixties. Yeah, well, one of them she didn't even know she was in. Uh, Blood of Fu Manchu <laughs> was kind of they, they played a little dirty with her there, so she wasn't very happy about that. Uh, and of course, you know, also the girl from Rio or Future Women and any number of other titles that you want to apply yeah. to it. But yeah, I mean, she was uh, she was part of that. Uh, Leo Gen uh, was in Bloody Judge, uh, of course. Dennis Price we mentioned, and, and Christopher Lee. Um, so yeah, it's uh, quite a quite an interesting cast. I mean, in in line with the 1945 version as well, which is regarded as the gold standard, um, yeah. you know, for obvious reasons. But uh, I don't think this one comes across as a redheaded stepchild at all, though. No, I was pleasantly surprised with this one. And uh, I think this may I think this may be my introduction just this year to this particular version of the story, mm-hmm. um, mainly because I've never actually gone and sought out the various the various adaptations of. Uh, I've also never read the novel. I did rewatch ah. the uh, I, I have watched the uh, the forty five version yeah. on numerous occasions when I was a teenager. My stepmother actually bought it on videotape, and so easy access meant multiple viewings, and so the. Um, joys of the story always remain the same and i think that one of the reasons why i may have never seen may never have seen the 65 version is uh just no opportunity and uh if i have a firm enough memory of the story then uh i'm going to be you know darting my eyes around at who i already know is going to be the yeah. uh, the mysterious final <laughs> final final character the one who's instigating all of these actions right. and uh not really getting the full enjoyment out of it. So have you ever read the the original Christie novel? The, the book is uh, wonderful. I, I highly recommend it. Um, it. It has been adapted so many times, even if we just limit ourselves to official versions, of course, that, that's one thing, but there are unofficial versions of plenty as well. There are at least two Mario Bava Jali that are basically Ten Little Indians. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. Redux is in one form or another. Five Dollars for an August Moon, and to an extent, Bay of Blood, uh, I think as well. Um, but um, it's a wonderful book. But the book is very, very dark. And interestingly, there was a book, and then Agatha Christie adap- uh, adapted it as a play, which um, 
I should preface by saying that the original name of the book, I can't say. It's no, yes, it's yeah. a particularly unpleasant um, term. It was acceptable amazingly at the time. Uh, it is not acceptable now. If you're really curious, you can look it up. But she also adapted it as a stage play called And Then There Were None. So very often you'll hear versions referred to as either Ten Little Indians or And Then There Were None. And Then There Were None, uh, unless I've got it backwards, but I'm pretty sure it was Ten Little Indians first and then And Then There Were None was to play, uh, is much more audience friendly. Um, it actually has uh, a happy ending, whereas the book is incredibly dark and th there is no happiness yeah. there. And uh, prior to a, a very, very good recent BBC version um, with uh, Sam Neill and Charles Dance, among other actors, I think there was only a Soviet version uh, that actually did the book as intended. All the other versions are based on the play where, you know, there's this ironic twist at the end, but which enables uh, the hero and heroine to kind of walk off into the sunset together. So very different from the book. The book is wonderful. If you get a chance to read it, I would recommend it. All right, all right. Well, the uh, um, various versions of this, and yes, the the uh, shall we say redheaded, the actual redheaded stepchildren of this particular Agatha Christie story, such as Five Dolls for an August Moon, mm -hmm. proliferate. There are a number of them around. I've even seen. Um, I wish I could remember where, but I do remember some particular television series just having an, a two part episode somewhere in the nineteen eighties that was obviously just this story. Uh, adapted to the characters that were already in place mm -hmm. and uh, therefore have, you know, specifically using the cheat of being able to, you know, salvage two characters at the end of the story because it turns out that one is an imposter and yes. the other's uh, supposed murder was uh, committed by a, a relative. Right. I cannot for the life of me remember where I saw this. It's just, it's, it, it got to be one of those things where I was pretty sure that there had to have been literally dozens of adaptations mm -hmm. of this, much in the way that almost everything in the world does its own version of A Christmas Carol, I saw, I saw, I thought that surely almost everyone and their grandmother found a way yeah. to wedge this story into whatever setting that they had or whatever number sure. of characters that they might be able to fit it into in around. Yeah. Uh, it turns out it's, it's not as frequent as I imagined, but there are a number of variations on this particular theme. And... I have to say, I agree with you. This version, the 65 version, uh, although it is odd to have uh, a 1965 film with uh, this cast mm. um, be shot in black and white, I, I would have actually been much more uh, surprised uh, if I had not been forewarned because I would have expected, especially considering the, the other films that Harry Allen Towers was producing at the time being in, being in color, uh, I just would have expected it to be in color and that just being another thing to ballyhoo, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the story now in color or something like that. But, I'm wondering if, um, if the decision to go with black and white might not have been informed by the recent series of Miss Marple films with Margaret Rutherford, which were shot in black and white, which were directed by the same man, George Pollock. See, I kind of wondered about that too because yeah. I've not seen. Uh, I've, he he did he directed four of them. The fellow who directed this, yeah, uh, did direct four of those Miss Marple films, and they yeah. have fairly good repu reputations. But I have yet to see those. Oh uh, wow! Uh, yeah, I just I've not gotten around to them. Uh, I have rather easy access to them, but I just have not watched them as yet. Uh, I, I I will admit that when I um, when I'm interested in delving into Agatha Christie, uh, I'm pulled much more toward either the uh, non-Marple or non-Perot stories 
the kind of, you know, standalones, essentially. Or I will drift toward Hercule just out of... uh, uh, kind of the curiosity of the oddness of the character. Yeah. But the, uh, I have not, so I've not, uh, it's only been in the past 10 to 15 years that I've really shown a, an interest in trying to march my way through a large number of Christie's work. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll admit, uh, as a, as a younger guy, I kind of stepped over and around them, uh, simply out of, uh, I think a slight intimidation at how many there were. Oh yeah. She was very <laughs> prolific. Very prolific, yeah. and there there is kind of a, um, you know, she has a very strong following, but there are a lot of people who are very snooty uh, about her writing as well. They they tend to think, oh well, you know, it's all this kind of quaint, cozy nonsense. And uh, actually, um, I mean, th- to be fair to contemporary readers, there there is some pretty uh, outrageous attitudes and mentalities that are on display in some of her stories and her writing and so forth. She was of her time. Uh, so there, there are certain things that are less than enlightened, let's say, um, that crop oh, well, up yeah. in the stories. But uh, she now, knew how to tell a story. Point, pointing to the original, you know, the original title of this story is well, is only the first, you know, the tip of the iceberg in a, in a way. So. Well, and but that was, I mean, that was the name of the the uh, the nursery rhyme. Um, yeah, yeah, for years. Uh, it's actually, I mean, speaking of Dennis Price, it's even referenced in uh, his, you know, probably his greatest film, greatest performance, uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets. Uh, at one point, he's talking with Joan Greenwood, and uh, they quote that. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, again, it's uh, it's one of those things that nowadays people would be appalled by, but you have to understand that these were the times, and, uh, you know, that was that was kind of commonplace. But, yeah, Christie was extremely prolific. Um, I love the Poirot stories. As a matter of fact, I think it was last year I finally went through all the David Suchet uh, adaptations, which were wonderful for the most part. Um, there were a couple. His, his Murder on the Orient Express was strangely disappointing. Um, but huh. that being said, uh, most of the adaptations are superb, and he was superb. So, um, And uh, Margaret Rutherford, Miss Marple – they they play pretty fast and loose with the stories. Uh, they're not at all really faithful to what she wrote, uh, which is fairly to be expected. They have a similarly kind of jaunty tone that Pollock also brings to this. Uh, what's interesting is that I don't know if you've seen the 74 version directed by Peter Collinson with Oliver Reed and uh, Richard Attenborough, um, but they, they use the same script. It's exactly the same dialogue. It's exactly the same order of events. I mean, it is the same thing. They just changed it to a hotel in the middle of the Iranian desert because Harry Allen Towers had made a deal with the Shah of Iran so they could film there. <laughs> uh, so it changes from the extreme cold to the extreme uh, hot. But other than that, I mean, it's got a Bruno Nicolai soundtrack. It's got you know, all these, uh, you know, Adolfo Celli and Alberto de Mendoza and, uh, you know, Gert Froba. So it feels very much like a giallo in many respects. But the difference is, what's very interesting is that Pollock shoots it in this kind of jaunty, slightly tongue-in-cheek way, whereas Peter Collinson is a director not really necessarily known for his sense of humor terribly, apart from the Italian job, shoots it in a very serious and kind of grim fashion. So it's kind of a fascinating compare and contrast. Uh, So this film is a little bit closer to the kind of feel of those Miss Marple films with uh, Margaret Rutherford, which, again, are very different from the books. And also, if you watch, like, the... um, uh, the Joan Sims adaptations from the 1980s, which are much closer, you know, you can see that that was, you know, they took a lot of liberties with that. Well, I do have on my uh, my to do list, my to watch list, the uh, the films from the uh, from the 60s and also the 
the uh, both series. I've only dipped my toe into um, the well-regarded television adaptations mm-hmm. of the two main Christie characters, just uh, just on 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 occasion, and I've enjoyed what I've seen. Uh, but the uh, the ability now to rather easily go through those series in rapid fashion is something that I can see myself falling into the trap of one day. Yeah, uh, and, and and my uh, my few viewings of. Uh, some of that stuff has been encouraging, so it'll happen eventually. Yeah. Um, so this story in particular, I think, is it's if if I had to decide, just looking at the 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 Christie uh, stories that I'm really familiar with, and I'll admit I I've read probably only about a dozen of her novels over the years, but I've always been impressed. I've always enjoyed each one that I've read, and they've and she she's she's very 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 good at. At at treating me like I'm a fairly intelligent dog and hiding the ball from me effectively. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I've really got to root around. I and uh, uh, in each one of the each one of the books there that I've read in the past, the story does get to a point where I realize, okay, shit, I just I can't figure this out. Yeah. Okay, I'm yeah, I, the, the things have been effectively hidden from me well enough. Yeah. Even when later on the ending of the the, the third act will eventually give me the idea of oh yeah. well okay so there are there are things that I didn't put together there were. There were the errant two and two that I wasn't adding up to four. Yeah. Uh, that's very satisfying. I like it when I can be fooled, but I will stress that I am not one of those people who's sitting there trying to uh, work really hard to outsmart the film. I want the film to do what it wants to do to me yeah. without me trying to peek around corners and ruin whatever surprises it may have in store. No, uh, no, I'm not one of those people who gets really bent out of shape if I guess who the killer is, for example. It's, it's okay. I mean, to me, there's more to it than just that. And I think the yeah. reason that the book, uh, when I finally read it, took me as much by surprise as I did was because I'd seen the 1945 film and kind of thought, well, I know where this is going to go. I was like, oh, wait a minute. No, <laughs> I didn't know where this was going to go. I, this is depressing. Yeah, it's a very dark, uh, very dark, <laughs> very different from what you get, um, you know, in, in that uh, in that version and the most of the versions. So, um, no, I. I'm not overly concerned about, you know, am I going to guess who the killer is or not? You know, as, as long as it's satisfying and it holds my attention, that's really all that matters. I, I feel pretty much the same way. Um, let's take a look at the specifics of this. And we've already talked a little bit about uh, the cast. I will say that over the years, I have become, uh, without really consciously thinking about it, a really big fan of Hugh O'Brien. Yeah. And I can boil it all down to the fact that he has just an incredible voice. Yeah. <laughs> and he's his voice in this film this is a great example of how how good vocally he uh, he was as an actor and just how I mean that that it's 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 like velvet gravel man it's beautiful. Mm. <laughs> it's it's incredible. There are a lot of great voices in this film. I mean Leo Gann yeah. uh is a wonderful voice Dennis Price is a wonderful voice uh, Wilfred Hyde White um, but Hugh O'Brien, um, yeah, I mean, he's kind of one of those like Lex Barker type actors. He's just so good at being sort of very rugged and masculine and, you know, square jawed. Um, but he's a better actor, I think, than, than people sometimes give him credit for. Cause you can have him in a role like this where he's kind of ambiguous throughout a lot of the film. You can't really tell whether he's entirely on the up and up or not, uh, right. which he's able to play quite effectively. But then you can see him also, he did a film, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a particularly good film. I mean, considering the level of talent involved, it was very disappointing. It starred uh, uh, Peter Fonda and Telly Savalas and Christopher Lee and O.J. Simpson 
And uh, Hugh O'Brien, uh, it's, it's a film called Killer Force. Uh, Hugh O'Brien was like the head bad guy in that. And he was very effective in that. So, I, you know, everything I've ever seen him, I've seen him in numerous westerns and so forth. And he's just very, very convincing. He's one of those guys, I suspect, if, uh, if he would have been English, he might have been in the running uh, for James Bond. I could see him being that, that type oh, of yeah. actor back in the 60s for sure. Well, and I think that one of the things that may have tainted the, the the kind of public perception of him is that he did spend six years playing uh, Wyatt Earp on television, yeah. and there's a there's a pigeonholing that comes from that kind of thing, mm-hmm. where you know you become known, especially in those days, uh, that would be like more than two hundred episodes from roughly 1955 to 1961. Yeah. That becomes embedded in the mind of the public, especially in those days when you know three networks, westerns were the norm. And if you if you become identified with a particular character, it can take a while, if it ever happens, for you to kind of shake that off and be offered different kinds of roles. Oh, sure. And it's not and it's not hard to see that it did take him. If you look through the if you look through his uh, his resume, you'll notice really quickly that it did take him years before he was finally able to wedge himself into film uh, after the end of that TV series and start doing things it's like. Kind of- it's kind of surprising in hindsight, you know, he seems so a perfect choice. And I mean, it's, it's certainly the television background wouldn't have uh, impeded him at all that he never ended up in Italy doing Westerns. Uh, he, he would seem to be quite, yeah. quite at home in an Italian Western context, but that never happened. I know. I know. It's, it's, it, I think that he may have just been busy enough staying in the States, working on a pretty regular basis. I mean, he was always doing television, and then when he was able to move into actually occasionally doing, I mean, most of his work, to be be clear, was on television, Mm -hmm. but you know, besides, you know, Killer Force, he also, you know, he turned up in, you know, John Wayne's final film, The Shootist, and and at the same time, he's showing up on Charlie's Angels, and, and, you know, doing, you know, TV movie after TV movie, uh, a lot of people have uh, a lot of fond memories of the the uh, TV movie Probe and the series that came out of that. Uh, so there's a there's a, a lot of work he's identified with, but it almost always is TV work. Yeah. And the thing is, he's he's it, you're right. It is kind of weird that when you start looking for just the film work. He, he wasn't ever in a position, it seems, to be more than um, part of an ensemble. He's, mm-hmm. never, he's never really on the big screen as kind of a, a hero character or a main character of some sort, which I think, looking back at it now, I feel is a bit of a shame. Well, there, there is a thing, and I've, I've noticed this with uh, other actors who kind of get typed into TV shows that I'm not particularly fond of. You, you come to a realization sometimes that uh, some of these guys are really, really good actors who didn't really get many good opportunities. An example that always comes to mind for me is Robert Reed. Um, you know, he's yeah. so associated with a show that I just have no patience for whatsoever. I, I'm not a fan of the Brady Bunch, but you see him in things uh, where he's given an opportunity. He's a really, really good actor. You know, Robert Culp was uh, another guy who just seemed to be stuck on TV. Love Robert Culp. I mean, he is fantastic in Annie Calder, for example. Um, You know, to me, he steals that film from Raquel Welch, which is not easy, you know, uh, at least as far as the acting is concerned. And uh, he's just he's he's a wonderfully charismatic actor. And yet it just seemed like he was sort of stuck in the TV rut. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And certainly 
any actor, I'm sure, would would admit that the the key goal is just to remain employed. You know, you want to keep working. Oh yeah. So I mean, and th- there's a long list of actors that I could, that oh yeah that fit into that same category. Richard Crenna would be another. Yeah, Crenna's who, another one I like a lot. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. when you see him in something like a, a Melville film, he was in Melville's last film, Moon Flick. Um, it's like, oh man, why didn't he have more opportunities like this? He's so good. But the, once again, these are folks who, who primarily worked in television, and um, you know, so much the better that now th- those things do survive. Thank goodness, and now we can cast an eye back toward them and and observe them from a, from a distance of decades later, and really enjoy what is there but at the same time yeah it still does make me feel as if wow man there's some real missed opportunities in casting and and you're right if uh hugh o'brien had been british i i can i cannot uh i i, I could not have faulted uh the, the broccolis for looking right at him and going you know the connery guy's kind of tall but yeah. i think he would have been i think he would have worked really well but you know, every now and again, there are actors who just didn't seem to enter on into the radar. And like Rod Taylor, why did they never think of Rod Taylor? I mean, my God, he would have been perfect. Yeah. But, you know, this, this, these are just twists of fate and so forth. And it's not to say, I mean, maybe they did. Maybe at some point they did and they just never advertised it. But, you know, I think um, uh, and although they did later, they did. They were going to cast John Gavin uh, for Diamonds Are Forever. So, you know, they did kept, get past the whole British thing after a certain point. Um, but you know, Hugh O'Brien definitely could could play that. But again, he didn't really have that thing where he ended up doing a series of like German or Italian or Spanish spy movies, sort of James Bond knockoff yeah. things. Like a, you know, Ralph Nader becomes very popular to me. Oh, things. you mean George? You mean George? George, George Nader? Ralph Nader would have been hysterical. Yes, George Nader. <laughs> Ralph Nader. Oh my goodness, we 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 can only wish. But uh, George Nader. <laughs> Really? They would go, but Hugh, somebody like Hugh O'Brien would have been, you know. Well, I mean, George George Nader's George, George Nader kind of had to go in that direction. Yeah. Because I mean, because he was a he was a closeted gay man. Yeah. There were there were uh, there were barriers that he was not going to be able to overcome. So him exactly. ending up in a number of uh, a number of really interesting European produced films is much less of a surprise once you once you have that key piece of information. But sure. yeah, you're right. There, you know, Hugh, Hugh O'Brien. Man, how did he not turn up in at least one spaghetti western? I don't get it. Yeah, could have been a villain or a hero. Either uh, it would have been perfect. I mean, he had that that quality. Uh, you know, like a Lee Van Cleef. Uh, he he could have done it. Well, I love also the fact that as as soon as they could, they they have Hugh O'Brien get his shirt off. It's like, oh, there you go, ladies. He Check probably out had the same masculine the, man, the same uh, clause in his contract that Kirk and Michael Douglas had, where they had to show their ass in every film for a while. So you know, <laughs> or Paul, our friend Paul Nashie, of course, got to show off the physique, got to show the body, <laughs> got to show the torso, grease it up. Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> Well, they, they they do the same thing with Shirley Eaton, which I guess yeah. isn't that much of a shock, considering that most people are going to recognize her as Jill Masterson in Goldfinger. Sure, so. but uh, you know she gets she we, we see her in a bra and slip on at least two occasions, just uh, you know just to keep our interest in case we're <laughs> you know in case your attention is flagging and you're thinking about going out and grabbing some popcorn. Hey, here you go. Uh, no, 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 you need to need to stay put. Um, I was a little worried. I have to admit. When I realized that Fabian was in the cast, uh, with, and, and I really shouldn't have been, to be honest, because he does I, okay. I, he, he does just fine, and as a yeah. matter of fact, I, I kind of really enjoy yeah. his kind of uh, jerk of a character. 
and the and it's and he's playing it. He's playing it in a way. Uh, the the thing is, I've seen him, you know, hold his own in uh, different movies over the years. He's he's he's. I don't know that he's necessarily ever embarrassed himself. Maybe he has, and I've just not seen that particular road. Uh, but at the same time, the um, the fact that he was in the fact that he was in the uh, <laughs> the cast did make me go. Who okay? Are we gonna have you know? Is that is that gonna be the off note? Yeah, but we have we no. have this like this roll call of great British stage and screen character actors and Fabian. You're, whoa, one of these is not like the other. Um, I know it's like, it's like Alfred Hyde White and Fabian. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, um, but he's fine. He has to play the callow jerk, and he plays it very well. I think actually they originally they wanted to get, uh, and I could be wrong, but I think they wanted to get Frankie Avalon, which makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah, but that that didn't pan out. I'm I'm guessing obviously Fabian was kind of the cut rate Frankie Avalon. So if you couldn't get Frankie, you'd get uh, Fabian for bargain rates. <laughs> Probably so. Oh well, okay. Uh, Leo Ginn, you've already mentioned yes. uh, an actor who I will always have time for, and not just because of the death ray of Doctor Mabusa, because I'm a weird person. My God, what a career! Uh, you brought up the Bloody Judge, another yeah. another film that I'm 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 sure he'd. Uh, <laughs> He'd, ca- he'd cast a, a, a an odd look at us for bringing up instead of some of his other work, considering the, the length and breadth of his career. Well, yeah, uh, o- Oscar nominee for Quo Vadis uh, in the 1950s. Uh-huh. Uh, he played Starbuck for John Huston in, in Moby Dick. Did some films in Hollywood. Of course, he was in The Snake Pit. He played a sympathetic psychiatrist in The Snake Pit opposite Olivia de Havilland. Um, he was in, uh, he plays kind of the chorus uh, in, in Henry V for Laurence Olivier, yeah. you know, but he's also, he's in Pete Walker movies like Die Screaming Marianne and Frightmare. Uh, yes. And he's in a, a, one of Lucio Fulci's greatest movies, actually giving maybe the best performance in the film. I'm not sure, but he's really terrific in it, Lizard or Woman's Skin. He's uh, he's one of those guys. As soon as I saw him in Lizard or Woman's Skin, I was like, I, I love this guy. And I've got to see some more of his movies. And I had. Then realized I was like, oh yeah, he was in he was in Moby Dick, he was in the Snake Pit and things that I had already seen. So you know, it was a lot of fun kind of tracking down a bunch of movies he was in. He was in a Hammer film, uh, a war movie called The Steel Bayonet. Um, all over the place, leading roles, character roles, big movies, little movies, exploitation movies, distinguished and movies, it, you name it. And you mentioned it earlier. He he's another in the cast with just an astonishingly great voice. Oh God, yeah! What a what, what pure velvet. I mean, he's one of those. You know, if I had to make a list of great voices, he would be on there along with people like George Sanders and, and Christopher Lee and you know various other ones who who come to mind. Uh, he just makes the dialogue. He just purrs that dialogue. He's terrific. Yep, uh, Stanley Holloway. Yeah, uh, as our. Uh, as our uh, detective mm-hmm. brought in, my goodness, have I seen this guy? I've seen this guy in far too many things. Let's put it that way. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Mary Poppins. Um, but of course, uh, you know, one of my all-time favorite movies is Billy Wilder's *Private Life* for Sherlock Holmes, where he has yeah. a bunch of really distinguished actors in small parts. Probably came in for a day or two, and he plays a grave digger in that movie, um, who who imparts some information to Robert Stevens and Colin Blakely, and probably. That's probably the best-known part was really opposite Alec Guinness in a great healing comedy called Lavender Hill Mob. Lavender Hill Mob, mm-hmm. yes. Oh, so so good, yes. Uh, but he's one of those fa- one of those faces who um, 
I've seen he's one of those those guys mm-hmm. where you see him, you go, "Oh, I know him." And then you struggle to remember what you saw him in most recently. You tried yeah. to what, what was it? What did I see him in? What was he in? What was he in? What was he in? Yeah. And um when it when it snaps into place, suddenly you realize it's like, "Oh, wait a minute. I just recently rewatched Brief Encounter." Oh, yeah. he's in that. Wait, yeah, yeah. wait, wait. You know. Yeah. Yeah, um, um, and I suppose I should mention, I mean, for the benefit of people who remember the 45 version, I think, you know, going back and thinking about some of the people we've talked about, I think Ronald Coleman played that part in the 1945 version. Um, The Leo Genn part would have been played by C. Aubrey Smith. Uh, And our young hero and heroine, um, I actually don't remember who the girl was, but uh, Lewis Hayward was the the male lead. So, you know, obviously... uh, uh, very good choices being made as far as the casting in this. I mean, these were all actors who, I, well, for the most part, I don't know that uh, Stanley Holloway did anything else for Harry on Towers. I'm not entirely sure that he did, but Leo Gann obviously did, uh, and uh, various other actors did as well. So they were kind of all in that orbit. Uh, let's talk about Dahlia Lavi, someone whose career I yeah. honestly thought was much longer than it was. Uh, really pretty much just in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um and that's really when it began and ended. Of course, unforgettable in Baba's The Whip and the Body. Yeah, uh, I, I remember her from Old Shatterhand because I am a yeah. fan of those those German westerns. Yeah, and um, I had forgotten that she was in Lord Jim. I have to admit that that had slipped from my mind. But she's unforgettable in The Silencers with Dean Martin. Yeah, um, and really kind of a shock to know that you know by nineteen seventy one ish. She's off the screen. She's basically retired. Uh, mm-hmm. I think she returned to the screen a couple of times in the '90s, but you know, for for whatever reason. But yeah, I I, I would say about a ten year career if you were if you were to be honest about it. And she's just stunningly a stunningly attractive woman, especially here in black and white, which uh, was a bit of a surprise. How how as how at how. The black and white really does enhance her facial features. She's gorgeous in black and white here. See, finally enough, I, I I don't think they did her a lot of favors in this movie. The makeup and the and the wigs, I don't think worked for her. Um, they they gave her some sort of well, the wigs are weird. The wigs are very the, strange. The wigs are, weird. the wigs are very strange, yeah. but they give her this kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of a swarthy appearance in the movie. I I don't know if it was like an attempt to sort of go light and dark. You know, Shirley Eaton's blonde and pale. So they kind of want to go a little bit darker with her, but it's, it's it creates a strange look in the movie that I I think is rather rather unfortunate. I mean, she's a very obviously an extremely beautiful woman and a very very fine actress. Yeah. We mentioned the whip in the body. Uh, you know, Bava originally I think had thought about casting Barbara Steele, and I'm so glad that he didn't. Uh, quite frankly, because I think Dalia Lavi gives a performance that nobody could have you know topped in that role. She's really terrific in it. Um, and another movie she did for Brunello Rondi, uh, Il Demonio. Uh, she gives yeah. a terrific performance in that as well. Um, she's good here. I mean, she's she's not really given as much to do as I would like, but it's nice. One of the things that's really nice about this film is just to be able to hear her voice, because obviously in those Italian films she did, she was revoiced by other people. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm enjoying her so much in this film. Other than, like I say, I think the black and white really brings out the mm-hmm. beauty of her face uh, in a way that color sometimes did not necessarily. Uh, she looks as beautiful here as she did in The Whip and the Body. And uh, I'm just used to her not, nece- either for purposes of the story being told in the character she's playing in different movies, not really looking like 
the movie star that she's yeah. portraying here, uh, right. where you know the idea would be that she would be, at, you know, presenting herself in the most as the most gorgeous woman that you can oh, imagine sure. on screen. Yeah, no, so, she's impossibly but, glamorous. Yeah, exactly. But I think that you're right to point out something that hadn't really clicked until you mentioned it to me just now, which is that hearing her voice probably also was a bit of an enhancement for my enjoyment of her in this as well, because, yeah, you're right. I'm just used to seeing her dubbed to one degree or another, Mm -hmm. depending on, you know, regardless of what film we're talking about. And in this, she is not. Yeah, no, it's that's definitely true. I mean, fortunately, this is uh this is not a Harry Allen Towers production that needed to be sort of uh, post-synced uh, and revoiced. Uh, I would hate to think of this movie losing some of these marvelous voices that it has. Let's talk about Mario. Mario Adorf, uh, another actor I love dearly. Um, probably first became aware of him as uh, Berto Consalvi, the uh, cat-eating artist in Dario Geno's Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. I think I, that's probably where I first saw him as well. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, you know. I only paint mystical scenes. Why? Why? Because I feel mystical. If it's any of your damn business, uh, he's uh, he's terrific. Um, had been in big films too. He's in uh, Major Dundee for Sam Peckinpah, for example. Um, yeah. And had reportedly turned down uh, playing Mapache in in the Wild Bunch, and he turned down, I think, the role of. Um, oh God! What was uh, Alatieri's character in The Godfather? I can't remember his name right now. Um, oh wow! Really? That would have been Solazzo. Yeah. Solazzo. He could have done that very yeah. easily. Yeah. Yeah, he could have done, but for whatever reason, he turned them down. Um, he's had a very distinguished career. I mean, he's a big, big name in in Europe. Not a big name in America necessarily, but yeah, he worked with Billy Wilder. He's in Fedora for Billy Wilder. He has a nice part in that. Uh, he he kind of came to prominence playing a serial killer for Robert Siodmak in a really wonderful film called The Devil Strikes at Midnight. Um, which only just recently got a Blu-ray release in the U.S. Uh, through Kino, so I'd recommend you check that one out if you get a chance. Yeah, it's kind I have of a not, noir. Yeah. I've heard of it. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's wonderful in that, um, and he—he's just you know he's in the tin drum, of course, and he's just he's a magnificent actor. Um, well, Roman. I, I most I most recently rewatched uh, Caliber Nine and was just was reminded of how good he is in that. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, he's 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 extremely good in that, and then he was he, uh, also in uh, Execution Squad, and uh, oh my goodness! The, well, the Italian connection, in- the Italian connection. My God, um, he plays the lead in that for Fernando DeLeo, and uh, woof, he does some of his own stunts in that. They're pretty impressive, and he's amazing oh, wow, in that. Really? Yeah, that well, whole he, scene he, on the car. Oh, okay. Well, he yeah. was very good in uh, What Have They Done to Your Daughters as well as the Inspector. yeah. Yeah, he's great in that uh, short night of glass dolls. I mean, you could just go through. I mean, oh, yeah, so yeah. many, so many good films, but always wonderful. Uh, he was actually originally also cast as the um, the boat captain in Fitzcarraldo, um, but he and Werner Herzog had a falling out, so that didn't work out. <laughs> uh, well, so of course, instead of instead of going with someone who might have made might have made his life a little easier, he went with Klaus Kinski. Well, no, no. no. <laughs> No, no, no. The boat captain, not 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 close. No, not kids. No, Robards. Wrong role. Wrong role. Jason but, Robards was to play Fitzcarraldo at that stage, and uh, and, and uh, I forget who plays the captain in the film. It's not a big name, um, but it didn't work out. So I mean, you know, what a wonderful, wonderful career, though. And again, it's great in this film because in a lot of those Italian films we've been talking about, he's dubbed. So here we've got his real voice, and uh, obviously spoke English extraordinarily well. So. 
um, no no problems with his accent whatsoever in terms of understanding him. He had he was working. I mean, my goodness, the man. He he was having films come out as as recently as twenty twenty one, and he's still and he's still with us as far yep. as I know. Yep, he's still around. Uh, there were some pictures of him um, giving Dario Argento a, a, some sort of lifetime award uh, within the last five years or so, and he, he looks good. I mean, it's just you know his hair is white now, but he still still looks like Mario Adorf. Amazing. Uh, let's see. How about let's talk? Well, you've already brought up uh, Dennis Price, and uh, what an incredible career. I mean, yes, he did end up doing a lot of uh, Euro trash. The stuff that you know, you and I, you and I uh, tend to love, mm-hmm. uh, both you know, on the continent and and things like Tower of Evil as well in, yeah. with, in Britain. But um, I think I, I have to say, I think the first time I ever saw him was in Twins of Evil. Yeah, enough. I think so too. And uh, I was I was kind of perplexed at the time because I you know he's he's second build in the film and his role is rather small and I didn't realize it at the time. That you know, he he had been for a period of time. He was the biggest box office star in England um, for a brief period of time. It didn't last very long because they they shoved him into too many movies that weren't very good, and it kind of hurt his career. But he, uh, he's somebody. I mean, I could talk for hours about Dennis Price. He had such an extraordinary life and career. A uh, very tragic man in many respects. Uh, he was uh, uh, kind of closet homosexual and uh, had attempted to commit suicide in the fifties. Uh, got a lot of public sympathy out of that, as a matter of fact, and uh, kind of, you know, his his career rebounded for a little bit after that. Um, he was in a film called Victim with Dirk Bogard, which was a very courageous film that dealt with homosexuality uh, during a period when it was still a punishable illegal offense in Great Britain. Uh, and so, you know, here are these actors, these kind of closeted actors like uh, Dennis Price and Dirk Bogard doing this film. It was pretty pretty ballsy for the time you have to give him credit for that but you know a wonderful sort of sly comic actor if you ever get a chance to see him in things like i'm all right jack uh private's progress you know he's he's very very funny in those films um and of course one of the greatest performances i've ever seen uh is kind hearts and coronets where everybody talks about alec guinness because guinness does the stunt casting in that film he plays like eight characters but he doesn't really have an opportunity to really establish a character in any of them. You know, it's, it's just more of a joke. He's, he's, you know, showing up in drag and, and various different disguises and so forth, playing all these roles. Dennis Price carries that movie. And what a wonderful, wonderful, brilliant uh, black comic performance uh, he gives in that film. Um, you know, and then later, yeah, I mean, he runs into problems. He's an alcoholic. His looks faded. Um, his his box office kind of clout started to sag, and he just it took anything. So he does uh, little low budget movies, even going back to the early '60s. He's in things like The Earth Dies Screaming for Terrence Fisher. Uh, he's yeah, great yeah. in that. Uh, and then you know, gradually he does. I thought yeah, like, but at the same time, at the same time, he ends up in things like uh, Tunes of Glory, which is yeah. an absolutely brilliant movie. Brilliant and then, movie, you know, and he's fantastic in it. Yeah. And, and, and then you know, a, you know, a bunch of te- a bunch of different pieces of television, mm-hmm. and then yeah, you're right. We we get into that. We get into the '60s, and he's in that area where he's obviously turning into just a jobbing actor, someone yeah. who is 
taking pretty much whatever comes his way and doing whatever he can with it. And yeah. I think that I do wonder, uh, he was in one of the Miss Marple films that the director yes. of this film uh, was. made as well. And I wonder if that connection is something that, that, you know, put him on the, the radar of, uh, Harry Allen towers as someone to bring into this. Could be, um, could be. He became a towers, uh, kind of actor as well. Of course he's in Venus and furs. Um, he was supposed to play the part that Leo again played in Bloody Judge, but he had to bow out. Uh, he was supposed to play Professor Van Helsing in Dracula, but he had to bow out, and uh, Herbert Lom did it. Um, so, you know, but, I mean, he also he ended up doing, I think, like five films for Jess Franco altogether. But then at the end, also, he gets to do a couple of, you know, bigger films. Uh, he's in Theater of Blood, plays Hector Snipe, the critic who gets uh, impaled and then dragged through the field uh, by, on a horse's tail. Um, and uh, in Pulp, a wonderful film by Mike Hodges. Uh, he plays an eccentric Englishman who's very fond of quoting from Alice in Wonderland and that. So uh, he yes, still was doing yes. some bigger films uh, at the end. But always, always one of those people who seem to be able to bring his A game to the screen, no matter what the, the, the no matter what the script was or what yeah. what the, uh, the the budget level may have been for the production. Um, yeah. he he gives he gives my my favorite example is the is uh, especially uh, in the seventies is Tower of Evil that really sleazy horror film. Yeah, that takes place on the uh, it takes place uh, near a lighthouse. Uh, and it's, it's you know it, the, the film exists for for gory scares and you know rampant nudity and he's still giving it his all in this movie no matter what and oh, yeah. that's always impressed me well he has a marvelous little cameo in horror hospital which is an even sleazier film uh from around that same time <laughs> and that 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 one is at least um very deliberately it's a satire um but he plays a very obviously he's a homosexual travel agent who's got his eye on robin asquith <laughs> Uh, he has he has a memorable run in with uh, Doctor Star's automobile. Um, so um, yeah, uh, Doctor Storm. I'm sorry, I'm confusing it with uh, Asylum. Doctor Storm's automobile with the um, uh, machete attached to it. Uh, so he's yeah, he's just wonderful. He died young. I mean, you wouldn't think it to look at him, um, you know. But he was only 58 when he died. But I mean, you know, again, oh, yeah, uh, wow. drinking really took its toll on him, and it was it was just a sad thing. But what, he really is. I mean, if I had to make a list of my 10 favorite actors, he'd be on there. He's one of those guys that I don't think many people remember him, but I will watch a movie just because he's in it. Um, I've watched a lot of movies just because he was in it. All right, I've saved uh, Alfred Hyde. Uh, well, I'm sorry, Wilfred Hyde White. Yeah, Alfred Hyde White. How, have I, how, have I, how did I blow that? Uh, <laughs> uh, I've saved him for last. Uh, yeah. You have seen him in oh, roughly oh, if you're a film fan, at least seventy movies. Yeah. Um, My Fair Lady, The Third Man. Yes. Um, oh my goodness! Of course. Without a doubt, you would you would have seen him in uh, you know Buck Rogers in the twenty fifth century. You know everybody <laughs> saw that, of course. Of course, uh, that that where where he was one of the reasons why uh, you know the second season was so terrible because the character <laughs> that he was playing was such an irritant. But well, he did well, tend like, he tended to give the same performance <laughs> over and over again. To be honest with you, but when it worked, it worked, and it works here. Um, and he actually works oh, extremely yeah. well with Dennis Price. Uh, their scenes together are are very very effective. Uh, you can really tell they're enjoying each other. Um, they're they're enjoying sparking off of one another. Um, yeah, they're playing off of each other very well. They are, and I believe the original casting for that character um, was was Boris Karloff. Oh, really? 
Yeah, there is uh, pre pre publicity material that exists with Karloff's name attached. I can't imagine them casting him as as Bloor. I think that would have been a little too active a role. So I think uh, I think the judge makes sense, and that would have been a good part for him. Uh, but obviously, that didn't uh, that didn't happen. Um, but uh, although I would have loved to have seen him in it, I can't complain about what Wilfred Hyde White does in it. Um, you know, he's also doubt, the film. This film would be much better known if if well, it would be casting. I'll admit, yeah, yeah. I mean, Karloff definitely. I mean, anything Karloff's in it, you know, people people gravitate to it. Um, but Wolverine High White. I mean, he, God, he's even into the '80s. He's in the Toy with uh, Richard Pryor and and Jackie yeah. Gleason. He plays the servant in that, and uh, he did an episode of Columbo. Actually, the worst episode of Columbo of the '70s, um, the one that's set in England. It's pretty pretty awful. Dagger of the Mind. Um, and also he did a really interesting um, horror movie that was originally made for TV, but it was too violent. So they put it out in the cinemas and it was it was supposed to be the start of a series, but it never went anywhere called Chamber of Horrors, where it was him and um, uh, Cesare DeNova basically playing kind of Holmes and Watson, uh, a revised Holmes oh. and Watson. But uh, Patrick O'Neill is the real reason to watch that one. Well, his career is so long and so varied. I mean, yeah. he was in uh, he was in a Carry On film as yeah. well as well as a Tarzan film, <laughs> and it, it, it's that it's that kind of thing where you just sit there go going, wow, good job, man, <laughs> get it get it going. This is this is exactly what I'm here for. Yes, it, yes, can, be you, be in every genre, be every. You needed a doddering Englishman. He was the guy that you cast. Uh, you know, uh, he was he excelled at playing sort of upper class twits. <laughs> That's basically what he played. <laughs> well, and, and here's the thing, and I think this is why I really enjoyed his casting and the role that he plays in this film. He could, and, and I will admit to agreeing to you that to a certain degree, he really ju- does just kind of play the same. He, he gives the same performance to a large degree, but there are nuances within yeah. the performance that allows him to be a doddering possible moron or a canny older mm-hmm. gentleman using that perception of him to his own advantage. And in this film, it is definitely the latter that is happening. Yeah. And it's kind of exceptional that you have to stick with the performance. In other words, you can't watch him in a single scene in the movie and know which direction <laughs> or where on that, you know, on, on that uh, line graph he's going to fall in this particular story. Uh, you, you have to see over the course of the, of the mm-hmm. film whether or not he is a doddering moron or not. The uh, the joys of this is now we have to come to uh, yeah. a decision on just how much of this story we're going to spoil because the whole point of this film is a massive it's it's a massive who is the I guess killer is the best way to put it although this is a killer with a purpose much along the lines of uh, not really retribution but more along the lines of justice seeking. Well, it's. It's kind of similar to what uh, Saw has done, uh, funnily enough, in, in recent years, at least in the uh, the 10th installment that came out kind of explains his modus operandi and why he is the way that he is and everything. So it kind of, Didn't they already kind of anticipates it? that a little Didn't bit. Didn't they already explain it? I mean, I thought we already knew why this guy was doing what he was probably, doing. Probably, probably. But to tell you the truth, I tuned out after the third one and I, I saw the 10th one. Okay. Uh, a friend wanted to see it, so I went along. and actually didn't mind it. I thought it was pretty good. But... Uh, yeah, it probably was established in earlier films that I may have forgotten or whatever. But I mean, regardless, yeah. it's that idea of 
kind of punishing uh, the wicked. Uh, so little, that's, little aside, uh, you know, that, uh, and that I'm not going to edit this all out. Way back a little aside first. about the Saw films, the only one of them that I've really, really, really disliked was the very first one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, there you go. Uh, well, I didn't you, mind you, the first you, one you, when you I saw it, but I haven't seen it in the first one? First of all, there is some truly shitty editing in the body of the mm. film. I mean, terrible. And some of that's probably down to budget. And I'm, oh, know, sure. Because those, those filmmakers have gone on to do much, much, much better work. But also, when you get to the, yeah. to the, to the, the big surprise at the end of the first Saw movie where the, the, the character stands up that's supposed to have been the dead body and that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's Jigsaw... There's, I just screamed yeah. at the movie, are you trying to tell me that a doctor has been less than 10 feet from a breathing body for hours and didn't <laughs> notice the, that this, was, this person was alive? Are you attempting to tell me that, you piece of shit? He's not a very good doctor. Uh, I, I'm guessing so. Although apparently in the later films, he apparently is a pretty damn good doctor. But, you know, uh, I'll tell you this. That was the moment when that, that's the thing that's like well, the, the big reveal, the big shocker, the thing that makes the film, you know, garner so much uh, praise from its fans. And it's like, no, that's where the film shit its pants. What are you doing? It's stupid beyond belief. Oh, OK. Anyway. Well, I had that. I mean, not to get too far, Phil, but I had a similar reaction to high tension where. Uh, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah. And then I saw it again. I was like, no, 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 that doesn't work. So, I mean, it just depends, I suppose. If if you can buy it, yeah, it's yeah, ingenious. Yeah. If, you, true, if you can't because buy I do, it, then, I do actually, yeah, it destroys it for you. Uh, actually enjoy high tension. But, yeah, the first Saw movie, yeah, that, 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 that's a good way of looking at it as kind of uh, mirror images of each other as far as whether you're going to accept that third act flip. And, yeah, mm-hmm. so, uh, I don't know. Well, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, sidebar, sidebar finished. Back to the film at hand. Um, each of each variation on this particular story, the 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 idea is to isolate these characters in such a way that they really can't escape until the entire retribution, justice, whatever we're going to call it, plays out. Uh, in the original novel and the first film version in '45, it was a uh, it was an island, an isolated island. Perfect, of course. Um, here, mm-hmm. it is a, uh, a rather, lo- I, I guess we would call it a chalet, maybe, up on a, uh, a mountaintop yeah. somewhere in vaguely Europe. Very, very. I assume Switzerland, but I'm not sure. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they go out of their way to not state exactly, but that does appear to be yeah. correct. And then, so what we have here is uh, Winter Wonderland. Uh, you've already stated that they, mm-hmm. uh, in the 70s version, they, uh, the isolated area is the desert. So all it takes is getting them isolated and then picking them off one at a time. Slightly like a slasher movie, only. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, I have, I have seen people posit this uh, in much the same way that uh, the Spiral Staircase is an obvious antecedent sure. to the slasher genre, and it's, and it's true. I mean, this is, to be clear, a body count movie. We sure. are watching ten people be put through the ringer and be picked off one at a time, regardless yeah. of their, uh, their deserving nature. <laughs> this is what we're here to watch. Well, I was going to say, I mean, if you think about sort of body count, I mean, uh, 
you know, certainly uh, the, you know, Ten Little Indians, the, the story itself, yes, that that is, uh, you know, very much way ahead of the pack. But even if you think about in filmic terms, I, I, you know, you could argue something like uh, the Universal Mummy movies, for example, the 40s was a similar thing. You this know, it was true. basically it was always about, you know, killing off uh, a succession of people for one reason or another. There's a, another Universal horror film, quite a wonderful one called Night Monster, which is another sort of similar deal. Um, you know, this slightly secluded spooky house and everybody's being picked off one by one. But, you know, yeah, that also takes us back to like 1920s, old dark house uh, murder mysteries and, and things, you know, Cat and the Canary and, and, and things of that ilk as well. So there's really no, no new ideas under the sun. It's just a question of how well you execute it. And Harry on Towers, let's not forget, I mean, he not only did this version, he did the 74 version, but he did another version in 1989, which is set on an African safari. <laughs> and I haven't seen that one either. Uh, my understanding is the yeah the eighty nine version is apparently not well regarded. Um, well, on the plus side, it's got Donald Pleasance and Herbert Wom. I'll watch them in anything. Uh-huh. Uh, but the the star attraction is Frank Stallone. What? Yeah, Frank Stallone. I think I think the phrase "star attraction Frank Stallone" <laughs> is actually is actually a series of words that that actually if you add them up equal a zero possibly a negative i think uh norm norm mcdonald would have had a lot of fun with that yes i think you're right it's like it's like you you start out with a positive statement and you end with a negative (laughs) statement and so you're just left with zero there's nothing there's nothing there (laughs) yeah yeah pretty much that that is by far the weakest of the three versions um although there's another one as well it's not it's not uh Official, but it is essentially another version of Ten Little Indians. Uh, it's Harry Allen Towers' version of um, Mask of the Red Death, also with Herbert Lom and Frank Stallone. So there you go. <laughs> okay. But that uh, one's actually a lot of fun. Uh, what, what year was that produced? Uh, 89 or 90. So it's it's uh, you know fairly late in the game for Herbert Lom. It would have been one of his last films. Um, it's not bad though. I mean, for I what admit, it is, it's I, actually. I have to admit, I'm going to seek that one out. Just the, the curiosity I have now is very strong. It's on Blu-ray. <clears throat> oh my god, really? Oh, that's mm-hmm. oh, that's just that's just terrifying. I'm going to have to. I'm, yeah. It's the holiday season. I will restrain myself. So, <laughs> so, uh, so we're uh, we've got these this group of ten people trapped in a uh, secluded place. Uh, it's kind of a winter wonderland. I do enjoy the. Uh, the kind of uh, almost festive Christmas feel of the uh, the credit sequence as they journey yeah. by a horse-drawn sleigh out to the uh, yeah. the, uh, uh, air, the the tramway that takes them up the side of the mountain to the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, the it's it, it kind of feels nice. This is the right time of year to at least at the you know as far as the setting is concerned to watch this movie. Uh, but the yeah. uh, the um, Introduction of the characters is is pretty well handled. Uh, they're in the uh, the credit sequence so that we get a look at everybody's faces. We we're mm-hmm. aware uh, to to the degree that you would have been aware even in '65 of who each who each of these actors was, and then sure. uh, we get to uh, the the setup. And clearly, it can be done, but this is a tough setup and story and plot overall to screw up. This this one's pretty oh, yeah. airtight. If you can manage to just place the camera and get the actors to say their lines in the right place in front of it, you're probably going to produce something that's going to be fairly interesting. And it's like Twelve Angry Men. I mean, yeah. how can you screw up Twelve Angry Men? Um, you know, not 
not to take anything away from the brilliant job that Sidney Lumet did with his film of it, but I mean, you know, the the TV version, the Sidney Lumet version, the later William Friedkin version, they're they're all good, and the reason it's so good, basically the material is very, very hard to screw up. It's idiot-proof. Pretty much. And this story proves that very effectively. Uh, 20 years after the last version, they produced yet another really strong version of it, in my opinion. So mm-hmm. we, uh, we get these 10 people... Uh, if you're unaware of the story, let's just give a... a, a I'll, I'll do this. So uh, these 10 people uh, who don't know each other, uh, at least uh, two of them have a, pra- a passing knowledge of each other. Uh, 10 people travel by aerial tramway to a snowbound mansion, invited there by a Mr. U.N. Owen to spend the weekend. They discover that none of them has actually ever met Mr. Owen, including his secretary, who has just recently uh, been hired, nor the married housekeeper and cook, who were also just recently hired through an agency. So no one there has ever met their host and uh, are told that supposedly he's going to be there that evening for dinner and uh, questions will be answered at that time. Uh, framed copies of the children's nursery rhyme Ten Little Indians are hung on the walls of each guest's bedroom. Uh, dinner is served by the uh, the butler uh, on a tray adorned with Ten Little Indian figurines as well. Kind of getting the impression that, of course, this is uh, this is <laughs> this is the 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 way in which this uh, Mr. Owen has decided to de- to decorate this place. Indeed. At exactly nine p.m., as instructed, Groman, the uh, butler switches on a hidden tape recorder, and a uh, recording begins. A man identifying himself as Owen reveals that each of the ten guests has a scandalous, murderous secret, and their involvement in various innocent people's deaths are the reasons they are here. As you might expect, as we've already alluded to, one by one the guests begin dying off, uh, in various and sundry ways. Um, It was kind of maybe the safe route to go considering what i what i fear about people people like fabian on screen that he is the first one to bite the dust um <laughs> he's there he uh he tinkles on the piano and play and and sings the entire uh, nursery rhyme for those who are illiterate and can't read uh so you get the entire song played out in front of you including the various methods of death which will play a factor in how mm-hmm. people check out as the story progresses and then he uh, gags, falls to the ground, and is dead from cyanide poisoning. Now, since, of course, everyone has been in the room where he is singing and playing the piano at that point in time, anyone could have slipped the cyanide into his glass, so this eliminates no one from the list of possible murderers. I, I, here's something that uh, that I think is very clever in this, in that in each case, in each variation of this story, of course the first instinct that anyone is going to have, especially a group of people who realize they're all under the same threat, is that there is someone else in the house and this is what, you know, and they're, they're, they're being attacked from without. It is not until later in the story as more people get bumped off that it becomes clear after a search that they are the only people in this place. And Mr. Owen has to be a pseudonym, uh, U.N. Owen, uh, unknown as you've already alluded to troy where we realize that one of these people is actually mr owen and we have uh 
I don't know, cat amongst the pigeons? Not really. We have someone here who is keeping an eye on the proceedings and making sure that things go the way that he has obviously planned for them to go. It becomes clear that this unseen killer is following the nursery rhyme very closely. <laughs> and that, like I say, having that song sung out and getting, a, getting the, uh, the countdown, as it may be, does lead us down into how these things uh, are going to go. Now, at this point, there is an obvious romantic t- romantic tension between the woman who was hired as Mr. Owen's secretary and the uh, engineer character, Hugh Lombard, who's played by Hugh O'Brien. So they're kind of coming to terms with the fact that clearly they're attracted to each other at the same time as they begin to realize that they really can't trust anybody else because that person might be the killer. Things like this are... I forget how well they're emphasized in uh, the 45 version. In this, it's kind of electric because there is a real chemistry between Hugh O'Brien and Shirley Eaton. I think that they play very well off of each other. I think both of them play it effectively. I think that at a certain point, about an hour into the movie, there's a great scene where the two of them are still... They're talking to each other sitting on uh, the the large uh, staircase that leads up to the uh, second and third floors. And the... um, Conversation between the two of them uh, comes to a head when uh, Miss Eaton's character points out that uh, she would not. She, she is happy for him to suggest that perhaps that they spend the evening together to protect each other, but that she would not necessarily feel safe, which is why she has one of the other people nearby keeping an eye on them so that there's a third person. Because it yeah. seems that only when someone is alone with another of the individuals here do they get bumped off? There is a lot here that works very effectively. As a matter of fact, I have very few complaints about this version of the film. I don't know how far into the story I want to go past the initial the initial death. Fabian does buy it first, but the uh, as the uh, different characters begin to be picked off, of course, everyone starts to fall under suspicion, and then we get my favorite aspect of the story, which is when two of the older characters um, think that they have essentially discovered that the, that each of them were with the other at a certain mm-hmm. juncture, and therefore they feel that they can trust them, and they form an alliance to try to save themselves. Yeah. Um, this is my favorite aspect of the story, actually, because the, uh, the, the final... <laughs> when things finally wind down and we get the, uh, we get the details of what is actually going on here... The cleverness of this particular alliance uh, turns out to be really fantastic. The uh, yeah. the it's one of the most satisfying aspects of the story. Um, without going too far into the story to kind of make some things get get ruined, I want to point out a couple of things that I find um, kind of amusing. I'm not saying that they don't necessarily work, but they are things that 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 had me raising my eyebrows. First, I will point out that I do think that the score is sometimes feels out of place. Um, it's, it's not that the music is bad, it's that I think that it is inopportunely placed or uh, being uh, inserted over sequences that it doesn't really fit. My favorite example of this would be the really brassy music that's playing as we watch uh, Grauman, the, uh, the butler, who's uh, 
who has decided that he is going to try the very dangerous trek down yeah. the side of the mountain because he has mountain climbing experience. Uh, the music playing over that that section of the film is wildly wrong. <laughs> it just it does not work. Um, I don't mind it. Huh? I don't mind it personally. It, um, it's it's very it, it's it's a lot of horns. It feels like you know everybody it's, it's should a very, be standing it's a around very, snapping their fingers. It's a it's a very jazzy score. Yeah. Um, Malcolm Lockyer, uh, who also did the scores for Terrence Fisher's two um, Planet film productions, sci-fi films of the late sixties, Island of Terror and uh, Night at the Big Heat, uh, he did the music for this film. And uh, I don't know. I guess yeah, I can see where where some people would feel it's uh, it's out of place. It does have that kind of big band kind of quality to it. But I somehow or another, I don't mind it. I find it rather a catchy soundtrack. So well, that's just it. Um, As I was saying, I think the music itself. There's nothing wrong with the music itself. I just don't yeah. think that it necessarily. I think that only about sixty to seventy percent of the time does it fit the scene that it's playing over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it, it there in those those scenes that there's kind of a a clunker aspect to the music in those sequences that really kind of needed to be re rescored uh, in a, in a, in a different way because the uh, let, let's just say that the the music playing over the prepping to go to climb down the mountain and starting to climb down the mountain. It's 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 like uh, it's like music being played over uh, I don't know a chase sequence in a Bond film. It's like where well yeah I mean even if I I don't mind the music myself and I I don't have a problem with it but I think maybe ideally maybe that scene didn't even need music um, maybe yeah. maybe natural sound the the wind whipping around and so forth maybe that would have been I agree maybe that would have been more effective um, but yeah I mean it is what it is unfortunately. Um, one other nit to pick, uh, I think the fist fight that happens between Grauman and Hugh is yeah. uh, a little overlong. I think that it yeah. feels at a certain point by about minute three as if it's padding uh, for some strange reason. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Not that that's necessarily terrible. I mean, having a, having these two people uh, come to blows is actually a very good thing within the structure of the story. It points out just how tight the tensions have gotten, and this violent release uh, does serve to kind of spell out well, the differences between the two men. Thank goodness it's between these two, because these are two big guys, and this works. Um, yeah. If it would have been between Hugh O'Brien and Wilfred Hyde-White or Dennis Price or Leo Gann, I mean, it would have been ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. One or the other would have snapped like a twig, yeah. Exactly. Having Mario Adolf get into it with with Hugh O'Brien, that that at least made sense. Like, okay, we've got two big beefy guys here. We can pull this off. But it does feel a bit over overextended, and uh, it does feel a bit like padding. I agree. Uh, and one other odd little thing, I'm 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 hoping that cat that lives in the house was able to to live off the mice because wow. Ah. Uh, as soon as we know that there's true. a cat in the house, I'm thinking. Well, it's pretty cold up there. I'm hoping, I'm hoping it was able to survive without anyone there the previous couple these of are, weeks. These are the things that that animal lovers like ourselves think of. We we obsess over the dog and the cat yes. um, in in these movies. Um, uh, one of my favorite um, Hammer movies is Kiss of the Vampire, and at, at one point in the film, I think there's only one scene in the film we notice there's this beautiful white dog. Uh, that belongs to the Ravenas, and it, we, we never see him again. And I'm like, what happened to the dog? Where's the dog? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always, I'm always more upset if something bad happens to the dog or the cat than I am if it happens to a person. That that probably says a lot about me. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you're 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 an animal lover, a pet owner, and it pretty much shows through right there. This is true. Um, <laughs> the uh, 
I, I, I will say that those are really the only nits I have to pick about the film. Uh, I was very happy to recognize Christopher Lee's voice as uh, the recorded yeah. voice. That that was a that was a, a certain little thrill there. But yeah. the performances, I think, throughout the movie are uniformly strong. This is very mm-hmm. well done. Um, and I'm sorry. Now all I can do is think of Frank Stallone and realize, well, we. <laughs> it doesn't far, quite measure up how far it falls huh yeah okay well even in the 74 version which is a very strange film i don't have you seen it no i'll admit that i have not seen the 74 version okay it's also on blu-ray if you're curious check it out i would say it's worth it i mean even as as an exercising comparison because it is the, it's the same film uh, it's just you know the setting is different and uh you know everything is basically the same and it's got a great cast but not a, not everybody's really at the top of their game. Oliver Reed plays the Hugh Lombard part in that version, which you think, oh, that's great, but it's not really. I, there's something about him in that movie that seems off to me. Hmm. Um, but again, I think part of it is just the fact that Peter Collinson elected to do it as a very sort of grim and serious film, and maybe it needed that lighter touch, and and maybe that's the problem. I don't know. Richard Attenborough plays the uh, plays the Wilfred Hyde White. Um, character herbert long plays the dennis price character elkie summer is the you know uh, shirley eaton uh stand-in and, and so forth gert froba is uh, is the uh you know private detective and all of uh, this casting sounds uh, spot on so yeah oh great great cast uh, bruno nicolai did the score which sounds 100 percent like a jallo score it's a great soundtrack but it just doesn't somehow it just doesn't quite work for me i'd be curious to hear what you think of it if you ever get a chance to watch it i think i probably will seek it out simply because of the cast and wanting to uh, to compare it with a fresh vision, with a fresh viewing of this version in mind, just yeah. to you know be able to kind of do a, a fairly close kind of one to one comparison. So that would be fun. Yeah, yeah. Alberto de Mendoza plays the butler. Um, oh. Who else? Uh, Charles Aznavour plays the Fabian part. So he's actually uh, you know. On on the face of it, that's an improvement. <laughs> Although, uh, you know, it's the character. I mean, the, the character is an obnoxious ass in any any version you watch. Yeah, in other words, it's almost as if the the the, the way the characters are built is so that you're happy with the first murder. You're actually kind of thrilled that this person's not going to be annoying you any any longer. In a way, yeah. Although, you know, it's it's you know when you watch this version, you're kind of like. You know, look at all these wonderful actors. Boy, I hope Fabian's going to be the first one to go just because I really don't want to say goodbye to Dennis Price or Leo Gann or <laughs> any of these other people. So, you know, if somebody's got to go first, it's got to be Fabian. I Just as an, a, 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 str- a strange aside, I would like to point out that it is beautifully photographed. Uh, the, the, yes. this, this beautiful black and white uh, photography is astonishing. And, um, yeah, it is. The, it, they do manage to get both of our uh, female leads uh, to they look absolutely stunning. Of course, when you're working with these two particular actresses, that's not particularly difficult. But it also, mm-hmm. like I say, it makes it makes Hugh O'Brien look like I don't know a chiseled god. Uh, yeah. he's he is not, and of course that's just part and parcel of the way he looked to begin with. But also. Everyone is just really well photographed. It's as it, it's yeah. it, it, I, and I know that most cinematographers go through this at the beginning of a production, no matter what, no matter what, anyway. But it's very evident that that uh, a number of lighting tests were done with each actor to be able sure. to figure out exactly what they're going to get 
uh, from one side or the other, from straight on, and what the, the changes will be in lighting to get them to look a certain way. There's, there's some real detail work in the cinematography and i i don't want to i don't want people to think that this is something that just really gets you know that, that that's so obvious when you're watching the film that uh you will take note of it it's just something that i started to take note of because i was surprised it wasn't in color and so right. the uh i mean as soon as i see it's in black and white i start to wonder if there was a particular reason and i think that maybe it would have been to to kind of milk the uh the ability in this really, you know, black and white and gray world to get those wonderful highlights on people's faces. There's not, and I don't want to give people the impression that the film is uh, shot with like high contrast film noir type lighting effects or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the attention to detail on getting the uh, lighting right on the actor's faces to give you as much detail and nuance that's being presented by these actors. And it's just, it's very effective. It's, it, you, it, you, you would have to be a weirdo like me on your first viewing to watch this and, and to think consciously about that. It's something that's built into the way a movie is made so that you don't take note of it, really, until you're yeah. you know, consciously going back and re-watching it and kind of picking it apart and pulling the uh, various elements of it you know, to, well, to see what to see what is to see how it's doing what it's doing to you. Well, I don't know if the version you saw had the murder break in it. Did it? No, it did not. And it wasn't until after okay. I saw it that 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 I found out that that was something that was included uh, in earlier yes. in in uh, theatrical in, screenings. In the in the British Blu-ray it, that is included, <clears throat> there is a British Blu-ray that Network put out. Um, so it does have the murder break in it. And the reason that I think of that in particular is because. And we're talking of other variations on um, Ten Little Indians. There's an amicus film that I'm very fond of from 1974, The Beast Must Die, which is effectively Ten Little Indians crossed with the most dangerous game, yes. crossed with Wolfman. And that also has a murder break in it. So obviously Max J. Rosenberg and Milton Sabotsky were well aware of the Harry Allen Towers version and decided, hey, that murder break was a neat idea. Let's let's rip it off. <laughs> yeah, yes, that that seemed like something that would be very easy to ballyhoo and to put, especially put on the poster to make people think, wow, this is going to be a really interesting, bizarre little whodunit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was the werewolf break. Who is the werewolf? Uh, but here it's you know who who is uh, the likely. I forget where it's placed in the film. I think it's already most of the cast has gone by then. But uh, yeah, it's it was Dumbledore. the same deal. Oh, sorry. It's Dumbledore. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, that's that's not mentioned in the obituaries, but uh, that's true. <laughs> um, but in this particular case, I think most of the cast was already gone by then. So that it's the same thing. The clock goes by. You know, tick 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 is over shots of Dennis Price and Wilfred Hyde White and so forth. Now, so. on this British Blu-ray, can you watch the film with or without it, or is it just it's a choice already made for you? I think it's built in. I think it's baked in. Okay. Um, but that's the way the movie was. I mean, that's the way it was released um, theatrically. But obviously, when Warner got around to putting it on video, um, you know, they they decided to omit it. So I don't know. I don't know if that's something that would really work for an audience nowadays. They'd probably think it's very hokey. But you know, I think it's kind of a fun touch. I think it's a fun touch, but it is certainly something that's uh, certain. It, it is a relic of the past. That is for sure. It's of its time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a William Castle thing. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's where I was about to go, which is, you know, it's it's buzzers, it's buzzers under the seats and skeletons flying out of a closet yeah. to, to levitate over the audience. So kind of uh, I, I I do throw around the word ballyhoo when I start looking into these movies, man, because <laughs> I do love to I, I do love to take note of how these movies were sold when they were originally well, released. 
if William Castle had made this, he probably would have had, you know, alternate endings where, you know, Dennis Price was the killer or De Wilfred Hyde White was the killer or whatever. Uh, Hugh Lombard dies. Hugh, Hugh Lombard lives. Oh, know? yeah. Well, that, see, uh, that, see, that would be fun. Kind of kind of the, 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 the way they went comedically with Clue. Uh, years Clue. Later, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Choose, choose your own path. <clears throat> oh, man. That's that's fun stuff. Uh, like I say, without giving uh, too much away, because it's, it is one of those things where I think... Uh, whatever version of this... Well, okay, I'm not going to go that far. Either the 45 or the 65 version are a fantastic introduction to this story, in yes. my opinion. I would always defer to the 45 version, um, mainly because I think that it is... Uh, it does it does the story in a, a more grim fashion, and therefore, to me, is a, a good deal more satisfying on one level. But I do love the twist that this version takes as well and apparently some subsequent versions as well because the uh, the way they build into the story the the reasoning for the two that survive mm -hmm. um, is uh, is valid and very interesting I, I like yeah. how they do it uh, without no, it giving specifics away I, yeah yeah I, I think I think it works and I think it also fits well within the eventual murderer once the murderer is revealed and that those pieces of information are in place um, he chooses to not necessarily believe the uh, person he thinks is the uh, <laughs> in this version I really do enjoy the the fact that the uh, the that mr. Owen checks himself out with the with uh, stating quite clearly well it doesn't really matter what what happens from this point on whether you do it yourself or the the uh, authorities do because the yeah. 10th little indian is going to be hanged and uh, well uh, i like the understatement of the ending <clears throat> without wanting to give it too much away but just the way the ending is played with the, the glass tipping over and yeah and all of that i think i think that works very very well um it's it's done with a delicate touch yeah and it's uh it's effective it's 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 th yeah. th this this and the 45 version i think are extremely effective i do need to check out these other versions if for no other reason to increase my viewing of frank stallone films uh you know i'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm clearly uh i'm clearly in the uh the underseen portion of the population as far as uh I, you know, I'm su I'm sure the super fans of Frank Stallone are just appalled. Uh, all, all well, three of them. Well, they should be. They yeah, should be. Yeah, yeah all, all three of them. Uh, there's there's two more than I last checked. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> but uh, also, if you want to see a really good adaptation of the book uh, that's much closer to the book, that's appropriately very grim, check out the BBC version. It was a miniseries. 2015. Um, again, available on Blu-ray. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Charles Dance, uh, Sam Neill, Toby Stevens. I forget who else is in it. It's it's really, really good. I like that a lot. Uh, yes, that's one that I've heard a lot of good things about it. As a matter of fact, I was very close to watching that just just this past spring. And for whatever reason, mm -hmm. uh, something intervened and I ended up watching um, uh, a different little, a, a three-part um, uh, Hercule Poirot adaptation mm -hmm. with... Um, uh, oh darn it! The ABC Murders, with uh, uh, oh darn it with uh, Malkovich with Malkovich, yes, which cast uh, the story in yeah. an older as, as as something much later in his life, and therefore yeah, kind of recasting yeah. the uh, the the uh, the story to a certain degree because that is one that I had actually read, and uh, yeah, uh, found found that very interesting. Not as satisfying as some other adaptations, but an interesting no, choice. No, I wasn't. I wasn't thrilled with. I like Malkovich as an actor, but I 
he wasn't Poirot to me. Um, somehow or another, he never quite. I was I was always aware the whole way through. I'm watching John Malkovich playing or kill Poirot, and I can agree. Uh, and I, I never, can agree with that. But at the same time, yeah. that um, the the re, the the placing of it later in his life, yeah, and that and that tone that that it gives the story. I found I found mm-hmm. really effective, and that's what worked for me. Uh, so I yeah, I, it's interesting. Yeah. It's worth seeing at least. Yeah, yeah. But the uh, the the joys of these stories, and like I say, I, I I don't know that I was ever in the position that we were discussing earlier of being someone who kind of looked down my nose at Agatha Christie stories because I've always found her to be an exceptional plotter. Uh, she yeah. she knows. I mean, man, that woman knew how to build a mystery. In ways sure. that are, uh, in ways that are devilishly surprising and and really mm-hmm. inventive, and uh, I would say, and I, I, I this is just I, I have like I say I've only read r- roughly a dozen of her novels, but I will say that I'm not the only one to think that my goodness this particular story and the the twisty turny nature of the uh, the way it works itself out is one of the best I have ever seen, regardless of who sure. the, who's penned it. It's exceptional that this is so dark. Even even the lightest version of this can't help but be an incredibly dark story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, like we were saying, it is it, it basically is sort of the template for what would become the slasher boom. Um, you know, we can trace it back to that. I mean, there might even be antecedents before that, but... Uh, certainly, it, it kind of establishes that idea of this, you know, the series of killings, um, very inventive uh, sort of stylized killings, which we know very well from Jallo films and uh, Krimi films and slasher films. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it it really set that up very neatly. Well, it, uh, strangely enough, and this, I don't think this, the movie I'm about to mention now is a particularly good example. I don't think it's a great film, but there was a uh, Peter Himes film in the mid 80s called The Star Chamber. With uh, Michael mm-hmm. Douglas, uh, yeah. which plays very heavily on this idea of a group of judges who are sentencing mm-hmm. people who have gotten away with murder to one degree or another, in some cases aren't even uh, necessarily legally suspect in the murders in which they are uh, accountable. And uh, there is a certain feel of a slasher to that that film as well, with it oh. being a much bigger budgeted, much more high-minded storyline, but it is another thing where you can look backwards and see the tendrils stretching back to something like this particular story, where... Or even even The Thing, as well, uh, who goes there, you yeah, know, the yeah. uh, the John Carpenter, The Thing, I mean, that feels very much, you know, again, that uh, secluded setting, the paranoia, who can you trust, uh, you know, in this context, who, who is a murderer, in that context, who is human, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's it's influences all over the place as a story. It's definitely uh, one of the all time great thriller plots, and uh, seems to be really, as I said before, really difficult to screw up. <laughs> it's 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 rock solid. It really is. It really is. And uh, again, just bring us back full circle. Um, you know, we've been talking about it. Yes, watch the '74 version. I think it's worth watching if you're if you're bold and brave enough. Check out the 1989, but also <laughs> by all means read the book. Oh well, yeah. Well, that's the thing is I've never been disappointed by by any Christie novel that I've read, and so um, 
the, uh, the, the joys of digging into any of her novels is that you're going to be entertained. <laughs> I know there must be, yeah. you know, there, there's probably a scale on that uh, a Christie aficionado could sit down and say, well, these are the weaker ones. These are the ones where, you know, she was kind of repeating oh, sure. herself. Yeah, but I've only read 12 of them, so I don't know. <laughs> I can dive in anywhere and it doesn't matter. You got lots to choose from. Exactly. All right. Well, I want to thank you for uh, first suggesting that we watch this film and talk about it. I uh, I did kind of limit the uh, the choices that we had by saying, no, 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 it needs to be something from the 1960s. And I have no idea why at the time that I said that to you, I was making that particular command. But good choice. I like I, I'm glad to have finally seen this. And I'm I'm now um, I now see stretched out before me the, the, the desire to uh, to probably go straight to the 89 version and get the pain out of the way. Um that could be the best choice. Yeah, yeah. Then I can back up to the '74 version and feel a little bit more, <laughs> feel a little bit happier. Uh, yes, that's 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 more like it. Uh, but Very we will true. see. But uh, Mr. Howarth, uh, what have you been working on lately? Is there anything uh, for public consumption that you've been uh, putting uh, pixel to paper on? Um, yeah, there's been a bunch of commentaries, although I can't really, you know, announce anything until they've been made public. Although there are a few coming out uh, for the '88 films. Uh, UHD releases of Lamberto Bava's Blade in the Dark and uh, Jess Franco's Count Dracula. Um, also, the Blue Underground release uh, UHD of um, Bloody Judge, which we mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Um, so those those are coming. Um, and also, I've uh, been working on a book in collaboration with an Italian film historian, Eugenio Urcolani, uh, called Unsung Heroes. It's perhaps going to be the first of a series of books about lesser known figures in Italian cinema who weren't super prolific. Um, so he and I both tackled two directors a piece and, uh, that book is nearing completion. Cool. Um, and, uh, I'm also laying the groundwork to do a book on an Italian director, Alberto De Martino. Uh, I've already interviewed his, uh, son and his uh, granddaughter and so forth. So I've got lots of material ready for that one. So, that's something to look forward to as well. Very, very cool. Oh, there is one thing that I forgot to bring up. I do like to do this. Something that uh, uh, Troy Gwynn and I do when we're going through the... Uh, we've been doing a series of 1940s universal horror films. And one of the great joys of that is uh, going through the uh, the reviews, the contemporaneous reviews at the time. And uh, that has what that is what has turned both uh, Troy Gwynn and I into massive fans of... Uh, and we put fans in uh, quotation marks there, of the uh, New York Times uh, film reviewer, Bosley Crowther. Uh, yes. Uh, and I, I do love knowing that uh, I have the quote right here from Crowther about this film. Well, actually, he's he. It's in it's in reference to the '45 film. He says he said it would be foolish to say this when he's talking about the '65 version. He says it would be foolish to say this remake comes within a country mile of that former movie version. It does have sufficient of the essence of Miss Christie's strange and creepy tale to make it a gripping entertainment for youthful and unfamiliar mystery fans. So if you're small, if you're young and stupid, you're good. You know, you're fine. This the 65 version is going to be great. Going to be fine for you. Thank you, Bosley Crowther. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I should I should have injected that earlier. But just to uh, reiterate, I have a question about the uh, the book that you're working on in tandem with the other uh, writer. Um, so four yes. different directors being covered in that book total. Yes, I am. Uh, well, my half is done. Actually, my my two directors I picked were Massimo Dallamano ah. and uh, Vittorio Salerno. Oh, okay. Um, 
Eugenio is writing about uh, actually his grandfather. Um, uh, why can't I think of his name now? This is embarrassing. Uh, Ju- uh, Giulio Petroni. Giulio Petroni, who directed Death Rides a Horse, okay. uh, amongst many other films, very talented director. And another director by the name of Franco Rossetti, um, who only directed a handful of films, but also co-wrote Django, the original Django. So, oh, De- Well, Death um, Rides a Horse is absolutely one of my favorite spaghetti westerns. I love that movie. Yeah, he directed he directed a few really good ones. He did one with Mario Adorf called uh, uh, Sky, uh, Sky Full of Stars for a Roof, um, which is quite good, also with Giuliano Jama. Uh, and a movie with uh, Orson Welles and Tomas Millian called Tepepa, uh, which is, you know, another one, uh, another top Italian Western. So uh, he has a very distinguished CV. But again, these are all directors who, you know, it would be difficult to sustain a book uh, yeah. for e- any of them because they didn't really do a lot. Uh, Dalamano was primarily a cinematographer and he died young. Um, so he only made a handful of films, but boy, they were good. Um, so really, I don't think he made a bad film. Uh, so that was that's that's a project i'm really excited to see what people think of that when it comes out i think we've uh we've uncovered some really good information for this one well and uh, as we can all tell from listening to you in this episode uh, alone uh, clearly you're working on a book about dennis price <laughs> <laughs> i thought about it i mean i you know certainly there are a couple out there but they're not you know they're not terrific i've thought about it but uh, i don't know i don't really have any immediate plans to do that but i could i mean my goodness what a what a career i mean and, the, and what a the, life the depth I mean, and breadth yeah. and yeah fascinating life that sad life in many respects tragic life but you know certainly um a life that had a lot of uh, uh a lot of incident <laughs> yeah to say the least oh my goodness uh yeah i'm just i'm just glad that uh i've been able to over the years banish the the overriding image that came to mind for me of dennis price which is from the uh, the Franco uh, the Franco Frank uh, uh, the Frankenstein film with Price uh, laying on a on a on a table pretending that he's being electrocuted oh. and just thinking to myself, this is a much better actor than. Then <laughs> why are they having Dennis Price do this? Why why is this happening to this? Well, man? I mean, who who could have done that? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just one of those things. You know. Um, I love Jess Franco. You love Jess Franco. Of course, we're enormous Franco fans, but I've, I've always found it rather unforgivable the way he filmed him in Vampires Lesbos running down the stairs. Because Price had really bad pains in his legs. Uh, he was obviously having a difficult time going down the stairs, and it's like he's pigeon-toeing away very, very slowly as Morpho is chasing after him. It's like, you could have staged this a little better knowing that this man couldn't really run. Yeah. Uh, but it is what it is. Um, you know, he's... Uh, the best scene, I think the single best scene that Franco ever did is is Dennis Price's big scene in Venus and Furs. Um, that scene is just extraordinary. The the way it's shot, the way it's edited, the way it's scored, and his performance, which is a completely uh, dialogue-free performance. I'm not entirely sure why, um, but yeah. he has no lines in that film whatsoever. But what an impression he makes. It's a really haunting performance. Cool. Good. Well, you know, 2026, uh Dennis Price book. Good to know. There you go. <laughs> Dennis Price uh, electrocuted on a gurney. <laughs> yes, yes. Flop, flopping like a fish for Franco. So, yes. <laughs> There's your title. Oh, my God. I can't believe that's. Uh, sometimes my brain throws out the wrong thing. Once again, <laughs> Troy, thank you very much for being on here and uh, for uh, talking to me about Tim Indians. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs>